This morning, as Nathan mentioned, is Epiphany Sunday, and um, of all the holidays, holy days, in the church calendar, the liturgical calendar, Epiphany is probably the one that most of us are least familiar with. Uh, We wouldn't even really know how to celebrate it if we were going to. And so let me, just for a moment, try to help orient us around um, this feast or holiday of Epiphany. So uh, this is the church calendar, historical uh, Christian calendar, if you will that followers of Jesus from all different denominations and traditions uh, have been walking through for centuries now. And it essentially starts at the season of Advent towards the end of November, um, and then it moves into the season of Christmas. So by the way, in the traditional church calendar, Christmas isn't a day, it's a season. And you know the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas? Well, yesterday was the twelfth day of Christmas. So if you watch some of those old Christmas movies where they don't bring their Christmas tree home until Christmas Eve, and then they have it up for those 12 days, that's what they're doing there. I've kind of been trying to get our family to do that, but it just feels really weird, right? Usually we get rid of it by the second day of Christmas. But, <clears throat> um, but Christmas is that 12-day season. And then we get to the day or the season of Epiphany, depending on which tradition or denomination you're in. Some see it as this full span between Advent, Christmas, and then all the way to Lent. Others just view it as a single day. Um, then we move into the season of Lent sometime in February, uh, which is a time of anticipating Um, the resurrection and the celebration of Christ at Easter, which again isn't just a day, but also a season. And then we get to the day of Pentecost somewhere at the end of May or early June. And then the rest of the year, um, from June through November, is what's called ordinary time, kind of just a chance to live out this story that we've been rehearsing. And so for several years now, Antioch has been to varying degrees uh, using the church calendar to help guide and inform our worship together. Using the story of Jesus to measure time, to uh, walk through anticipation, incarnation, uh, the revelation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, this great epic narrative of the one we worship and love, and say we want to, in a rhythmic sort of consistent way, year after year, immerse ourselves in this great story. And so we've never really spent any time on Epiphany before, but this morning we're going to, just for today, talk about the story uh, that we celebrate at Epiphany, which is the story Carrie just read for us, a familiar story of an event that took place two to three years after the first Christmas, after the birth of Jesus in the world. And so epiphany is a word that we use in casual cultural conversation. Um, When do we typically, what do we typically think of as an epiphany if we're just in everyday conversation? An insight? Good. Other ideas? An awakening. Good. Uh, we say, I have an epiphany, kind of represented by a light bulb. I have this, uh, this awakening, this idea, this insight. It's the idea, an epiphany, is when truth becomes reality. When something that is already true about the world, about God, about life, about whatever, somehow that truth that's already out there becomes ours. It becomes our experience. It becomes our reality. And so it's not just a great idea or something like that, but it's an awakening or the the kind of more technical theological term for epiphany is a manifestation 
when truth is made visible, made tangible, or made real to us. So a lot of us have had these experiences uh, for the good or the bad throughout the course of our lives where there's things that we know are true whether it's historically or theologically or even scientifically or whatever, there's truth out there, but there's an experience that awakens us to that truth in that that truth now becomes real to us. It becomes ours. So one of those experiences I had was the first time I visited the country of Senegal in West Africa uh, a number of years ago. And there's this little island off the coast of Senegal called Gore Island. And it's in the Atlantic Ocean. It's one of the westernmost points of the, con- or westernmost points of the continent of Africa. And on Gore Island, there's this place called the House of Slaves. And it's this place where during the slave trade, the African people were brought to to be shipped across the Atlantic to North America. And in this house, you can walk through it, you see these various little rooms, really more like dungeons, tiny little caves with bars on the windows. And you see one for men and one for women, one for children, one for the disabled. And then down the middle of this house of slaves is this long, dark hallway. And at the end of the hallway is a door called the door of no return. And if you stand in that hallway and look down through the door, you see nothing but the ocean. And what would happen is that these giant slave trading ships would pull up in the ocean and send out a a plank that then these slaves would walk from this door of no return out onto the ship to be taken away forever. Okay? That moment for me was when the truth of slavery became reality for me. I've always known the history and the horror of slavery, but standing there in that place, looking down that hallway, out across the ocean and imagining the journey of these poor African people, something happened in me. Truth became reality, and that's what you would call an epiphany, a manifestation, an experience of something that's always been there, but now all of a sudden, I get it. It becomes mine, and it affects me in a significant way. Now, we've also had those experiences when it comes to some of the more pleasant things of life, right? Becoming a parent for the first time or whatever it is. I've always wanted to go to that place, and finally I go there and I see it and I behold it, and I have this kind of awakening or owning where truth becomes reality. But that's the basic idea of what we're talking about at the day of Epiphany. So the truth that we're talking about when we celebrate Epiphany is that God is on a mission to restore all things back to himself. That God loves this world that he's created and everything in it. And through Jesus, he begins this story of redemption to make all things new again. And so uh, that's the truth. But the reality hadn't yet sunk in 
to many of the people that were there at the time of the beginning of this story of redemption. So if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2 in your Bibles, we're going to walk through this famous story of the Magi and talk about the significance of this uh, this narrative as it relates to God's manifestation or revelation of himself to the world that he loves. And so we're told that at the time Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. And so when Jesus was born, as we know, the Jewish people were an oppressed people. They were living under the Roman Empire, and King Herod was like this client king of Judea, which meant that even though he himself wasn't Jewish, he had kind of politically maneuvered in such a way to befriend the Roman Empire and establish himself as the ruling king over this oppressed nation of Israel. And so he was the guy that had been appointed to rule over these people. Now, what we know about Herod from history and from scripture is that he was an incredibly intelligent and crafty guy, especially when it came to politics and power dynamics and that sort of thing. He was a very talented politician and incredibly ambitious. His legacy was that of a great builder, that he uh, came in to uh, power through um, bringing about huge building projects. He rebuilt the Jewish temple. He built ports. He built aqueducts. He built infrastructure. And so much uh, of his legacy has to do with all the different things that he was able to build. In fact, if you come to Israel with me, you'll get to see some of those places, including one place that's called the Herodium, which is the place where Herod's palace was located. And he didn't want to just a palace kind of on the edge of town. He wanted to be up on the hills, but there were no hills, and so he had a hill built. And it's literally, it's a, it looks like Pilate Butte. He had people bring dirt in from all over the wilderness to, bring this, to build this giant uh, hill, and he put his palace on top. And we can walk right up, you, you do it right around like the Butte. It's a crazy thing. And so Herod was incredibly ambitious, incredibly prideful, but he was also this very erratic and unpredictable dude, okay? You never knew what he was going to do or say next. It's a good thing they didn't have Twitter back then. He changed, his <laughs> he changed his will four different times based on which one of his many sons was going to be the next king, okay? So when he started to think about who his successor would be, he would write a will and say, I want my, this, this son of mine is going to be the next king. He'd write a will, and, um, and that would be in place. And then after a while, he'd change his mind and go, no, I want my other son. And then he'd write a new will. Well, what do you think he did to the first son, who was now a threat to his throne? He'd have him killed, and so four different times he changed his mind, changed which son was going to be his successor. And by the end, if you were one of the younger sons, you'd be like, Dad, it's cool. I don't want to be a king. I'll just go be a plumber or something. Like, don't, don't worry about me. But uh, he went through 10 different wives, killed many of them. And uh, he would constantly um, just, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want to mess with him because he had a short fuse, a quick temper, and would do anything to suppress a threat to his throne. And so 
Many times, the Jewish rabbis that would come uh, before Herod that were perceived by him to be a threat, to be something that would be a strength to the oppressed Jewish people, he would have them killed on a regular basis. And so at the time of Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 2, Herod is probably about 70 years old, an old man by now. We know from history that he suffered from a disease, probably a kidney disease, that was very painful. He's in late, late life, he's in chronic pain, he's facing death, and he gets the news that five miles south of him, there's a new king of the Jews. And so in Matthew 2, these uh, magi come, and they ask in verse 2, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Okay, we'll pause for a moment. Um, This is when we come to talk about the Magi, right? And for whatever reason, they are kind of the most loosely represented characters in the story of Christmas. Um, The first thing is that we're told they're Magi, probably Zoroastrian astronomers, probably more like wizards than kings, right? So first of all, they're not kings, in the sense that they have political domain or power. Second of all, how many wise men are there? Doesn't tell us, right? We assume that there's three because they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There's probably a lot more than, than that, okay? So they're not, they're not kings. Uh, there's not three of them. And they weren't at the manger, right? This is a couple years after the birth of Christ. And so all your nativities are heretical. They're lies. There were no wise men with the shepherds that day, right? So just get rid of that. Um, They weren't at the manger, and they weren't from Orientar. We don't know where they were from. The traditional traditional kind of story is that there was one from uh, Africa, one from Asia, one from Europe, representing the nations coming together, of the continents coming together in the place of Israel. That's not biblical either, but it's a beautiful idea. But these magi, probably uh, astronomers, followed this star in the sky. Now, we don't know if it was just kind of a naturally occurring uh, incident up in the heavenlies or if it was something that God miraculously did, like the pillar of fire, a cloud of smoke in the Old Testament. But however it happened, this star led them not directly to Bethlehem, but to Jerusalem. Now, they would go to Jerusalem in verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. The reason they would go to Jerusalem is because this is where the headquarters of Jewish life would be. This is where their temple was. This is where they worshipped. And ultimately, this is where Herod himself and his, uh, and his Jewish domain would kind of call the center or hub of their activity. <clears throat> and so everybody there knew that if Herod ever even got a hint of word that there would be a new king of the Jews, that he was going to freak out. And Matthew uses the word disturbed and everybody with him. Well, why is everybody with him disturbed? All of Jerusalem, because they know what this guy is capable of. This guy who kills his wives, this guy who kills his sons, this old guy who's in chronic pain and is so worried about his legacy. Oh, in fact, one more nugget about him that's even crazier. Herod knew that he was so hated by the Jews 
that he gave a decree that on the day he would die, that they would kill a whole bunch of the most beloved Jewish leaders within the community. And the reason was he knew that on the day he died, the Jews would celebrate, but he wanted people to mourn on that day instead. And so he had many of their leaders killed so that there would be mourning on the day of his death. That's the kind of guy we're dealing with. And so, of course, all Jerusalem with him is disturbed. That these magi are kind of going, hey, where's the new king? Anybody seen the new king of the Jews? We heard he's here. We're looking for the new Jewish king. Everybody's like, no, that's not how you do it, right? So what does Herod do? In verse 4, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And so he calls together Jewish priests and teachers, people that should know the scriptures really well. And and he goes, where is this new king supposed to come? And they're like, Bethlehem, of course. Everybody knows that. It goes way back in the prophecies from hundreds of years ago. God told us that Bethlehem would be the place that this new king comes. Like, Herod, how do you not know that? You're the king of the Jews, and you don't even know these, like, elementary elements of our faith. And so then, Herod secretly, deceivingly, gets the Magi to go and to find this new king. And the hope is that they'll report back and say, here's where you can find him. And, of course, Herod's hope isn't to go and to worship the new king, but to have him put to death. What happens then is that the Magi go, the star continues on from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem, and there, of course, they find the Christ child, and they worship him. Verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts and gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So here's the significance of this story within the greater story. Here's where the truth becomes reality. We understand that this baby in the manger, yes, is the king of the Jews. Not would become king of the Jews, but is born king of the Jews. Was God's chosen or anointed or sent one? And was God himself in the form of Jesus. And that this baby would grow up not just as the king of Jews, but would become the king of the world. The salvation of mankind. The hope of humanity. And so far in this story, everybody that we've seen, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and everybody else we've talked about so far, They're all part of the Jewish people. But these magi, these wise men, are the first Gentiles that behold the Christ child. That God's truth has now become reality not just for the Jews, but for Gentiles like you and me, for the entire human race. And these magi behold and they worship and God brings all of humanity into this story. It's an epiphany, a revelation, 
a manifestation that Christ the King is now here to save the world. And what's interesting is that the Magi don't just stay there in Jerusalem, but they go back. They go back to wherever it is that they're from, back to Orientar, and they share this news, they proclaim this message with all of creation. It's a beautiful story. What I want to do is take a few minutes and pull out another uh, lesson from this narrative, which I think is incredibly helpful when it comes to understanding the idea or the process of truth becoming reality, of who God is and what God is like and what God's doing and what God's saying, truth, how does that become ours? So I think the Magi story actually serves as a lesson in the Christian doctrine of what's called revelation. Not the book of Revelation, but the doctrine of Revelation that we have a God who wants to be known. A God who reveals himself to creation. And so what we have here, if you notice the way that God guides this story, that God kind of shapes this entire narrative, it starts with this star, which again, we don't know how all that works, but God reveals himself, shows up in the world in a star. And then this star leads the Magi to Jerusalem, where they come together with God's people and are pointed to the scriptures. So God reveals himself through a star, and then he reveals himself through a community that's rooted in the scriptures. And then the star and the scriptures together lead them to Christ. It's a beautiful summary in a narrative form of the doctrine of revelation. Theologians use the, uh, use the phrase two books when it comes to describing how God has chosen to reveal himself or make himself known to the world. The first book is the book of creation. The second book is the book that we call the Bible. And these two books together give us everything that we need to know to find life in Jesus. And so going way back, even I'll read you a statement from what's called the Belgic Confession, 1561. Here's how some of our uh, ancestors in the faith thought about this. We know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, God's power and divinity. And second, God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life for God's glory in our salvation. So Christians have always believed that the two books, the creation and the scriptures, both contain God's authoritative self-revelation. That God's primary purpose in revelation is to show us who he is and what he's like. And we can look both to what we would call the natural world, the creation around us that we're part of, and we can also look to the scriptures and we can see who it is that God, that God has revealed himself to be. 
And so what's interesting is that the star doesn't lead the Magi directly to Jesus, right? That the revelation by creation rarely will bring somebody to the wisdom of salvation. But the typical flow is that God's revelation through creation would lead, just like it did the Magi, into the community of the book, the people of the word, who come to the scriptures and God's word is opened and explained and the meaning of the star and the meaning of the universe and the meaning of life is unfolded uh, through God's holy word. And so the star can bring us to Jerusalem, but only scripture can all bring us all the way to Bethlehem. Creation can bring us to the church, but only the church and its book can bring us all the way to Christ. Or you could put it this way, God's revelation in creation raises questions and begins the quest. God's revelation in scripture gives a preliminary answer and directs the quest towards the goal. And God's revelation in Christ satisfies the quest. And so my encouragement and my charge, and especially as we step into a new year, is first to thank God with gratitude and joy that he is a God who has chosen to reveal himself to us in, in ways that are hard to miss if we're paying any attention at all. That he's immersed us in this incredible creation and first invites us as participants in this creation, to look around at the world, at the stars, at the heavens, at the mountains, at the rivers, at our neighbors, at plants and animals and birds, and behold all that as an opportunity to come to know and to encounter God for his truth to become our reality. But then he's also given us even in more clear terms, in words that we can read, a story that doesn't just leave us guessing and wondering and speculating who's this mighty creative God behind creation, but where it's revealed to us who that God is and what the way to him is through Jesus. So these two books have always been part of how the people of God have pursued epiphany have positioned ourselves in order for our faith not to simply be a set of doctrines or ideas, but to actually be an experiential, relational, transformational encounter with the God of the universe for truth to become a reality. Even Jesus himself, in the way he lived, in the way he taught his disciples to follow after him, he referred to these two books constantly. Think about Luke chapter 19. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. What's he saying? Jesus is saying, even if my disciples were to be quiet, God's creation continues to declare the truth. God's creation, the stones, would even declare the good news about who God is. Luke chapter 12, we've looked at this before. Consider the ravens, Jesus says. 
They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Jesus is teaching his disciple the spiritual discipline of listening to creation. Reading God's book of creation. Thinking about the birds. Later on, he'll go consider the lilies of the field. He's going, by looking at the world that God has made, we come to understand the truth about God and it becomes our reality. So he's going, when you think about the birds and the way God loves them and cares for them, how much more does God love and care for you? So don't worry. If the birds don't have to worry, then you don't have to worry. It's a beautiful idea. By the way, if you don't know, this is Rick Gerhardt who's lived this verse <laughs> and made a career out of it. Somehow spends hours every single day looking at birds and encountering God through it, and it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. You should talk to Rick about it. This is what he does. He lives out this verse as a life verse, looking to the birds to understand who God is and how God's world works. And so my encouragement as we come into this new year is to intentionally create a rhythm or a goal or a priority or something in your life to listen to God through creation, to position yourself in such a way that we don't just go out, yes, enjoy the creation, enjoy the slopes and the trails and the river and all that kind of stuff, but what does it look like to consider it, to listen to it, to take time to simply look upon the world that God has made? and allow him to speak and reveal himself through us. So I'd encourage you, on a regular basis, we live in the easiest place on the planet to do this, okay? This should not be hard. Position ourselves to receive life and word from God. Secondly, this book of Scripture, which Jesus is constantly referring to, quoting, uh, basing his teachings on, as a way of life, Jesus is constantly coming back to the Bible. And the truth is, we don't have to follow Jesus. You don't have to follow Jesus. But if you're going to, then you need to follow him in what he says and how he lives about in relation to the scriptures. So think about John chapter 5. There's this group of religious leaders that are accusing him of various things. And Jesus says to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. He goes, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What's Jesus saying? Well, he's playing out this story of the Magi again. He's going, yes, you have come to the scriptures as you should, but the point of reading the Bible, studying the Bible, memorizing the Bible, isn't the Bible. The point of the Bible is that it points to me. That it would lead you to me. Just like that star led the Magi to the, to the Christ child. Again, Luke 24, he said to them, How foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things 
and then enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them that what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So again, Jesus holds up the scriptures incredibly high and says, you will never truly know me, truly understand me, truly enter into my life without immersing yourself in this book, in this story. It's not the end in and of itself, but it's the story that points to me. And so as followers of Jesus, this book is incredibly valuable. And it's essential to the formation of our faith. It's not optional when it comes to our discipleship to be people who are deeply immersed and engaged in God's word. And I know probably if you've been around church for any length of time that you've heard preachers tell you you gotta read the Bible every day, you gotta know it, you gotta study it, you gotta go in it all the time, and if you don't, you're a bad Christian. They're partly right. (laughs) But what I don't wanna do is say the reason you should read the Bible is so that you don't have to feel guilty about not reading the Bible anymore. So as I like to do on a regular basis is say, you are forgiven of all of your missed quiet times. You are. God's not mad at you. Don't let that guilt control this next season of your life. But instead, would you receive this as a gift, as an opportunity to come and enter into the life of Jesus? to grow and to thrive in the kingdom of God through the heart of God, the mind of God, the vision of God, the will of God to become yours. This is the book that points us to Christ. And so in the same way that I'd encourage you to find a regular rhythm to go out and listen to God through creation, I can't encourage you strongly enough to find a regular rhythm or practice to listen to God through the scriptures. And some of you do this and have been doing this for years and years. And some of us start a new Bible reading plan every January and then we get to where? It's always Leviticus. You get to Leviticus sometime in February and there's no more check check boxes. There's no specific plan or order that I would prescribe to you. I would simply say, find a way to immerse yourself in the story of God. And I forgot to make a slide, but the resource I would recommend for anybody that's struggling to engage scripture in a regular way, in a meaningful way, is the Bible Project. And we've shown a few of their videos, but they have incredible, beautiful, and informative videos for every book of the Bible for major themes. You can get quick overviews and big, big picture narratives. Um, so anytime when I'm going to start reading a new, a new book of the Bible, in addition to other resources, I always go to the Bible Project. And I find free videos, and it goes, here's how this book works. And uh, the guys behind are guys we know. If you, got, if you guys know Gary Bashirs, who speaks here regularly, he's one of the guys behind it. It's a beautiful project, and I commend it to you as a resource. It's family-friendly, even animated, but really well done. All that to say, this is an opportunity. I'm not a big New Year's resolution guy. I am a guy that says, 
if we're going to behold Christ, then just like the Magi, we're going to need to be willing to leave where we are to go where he's calling us. We're going to need to be willing to have the rhythm and order of our normal lives disrupted by the call to discipleship. That if Jesus is going to say to us, hey, come and follow me, then that means that we can't stay where we've been. That we go with him. That we allow our life and our hours and our days to be disrupted by him for the sake of inheriting his kingdom and living as his people here and now. Now the hope, of course, is that in creation and in scripture, we ourselves would be the recipient of epiphany. That truth would become reality. That God's word would become ours. We don't always get to control that. There will be days where you go sit by a lake and you open your Bible and you do the work and nothing, right? That's okay. That's okay. But the invitation is to come and to be shaped and to be formed by these two books. And even if we don't have magic, mind-blowing experiences, we know that the Spirit of God is working out the image of Christ in us through our humble obedience and listening. And we're being changed in ways we don't even know. And every once in a while, when epiphany comes, when we have that glorious sense that I'm sitting in the presence of God, that I'm the one in whom Christ dwells and delights and I live in his unshakable kingdom, that I'm loved and accepted exactly as I am, that I'm secure and significant in Jesus, that my life has purpose and meaning and that I'm here to be part of something great. Those moments are beautiful. And the hope is not just to be the recipients of epiphany, but as the people of God, we would become an epiphany to the world. That as the body of Christ, as his physical representation in the world, the way that we live, the way that we love, the way that we order our lives, the way we pour ourselves out, the way we serve the least of these, the way we speak out on behalf of those who can't speak for themselves would be an epiphany to the world. That this is who Jesus is. And this is what he's really like. So I'll invite you to come to the table this morning as we respond in worship. To come in gratitude, to come with open hands, asking that Christ would fill us with his life. That he would help us not just to perceive him, but to see him as he really is. And that his truth would become our reality. So we stand as we pray together. Father God, thank you so much that you are a God who has taken it upon yourself to make yourself known to your creation. Thank you that in so many ways, but especially through creation and through the scriptures, you have revealed yourself to us in the most beautiful way. And ultimately, both these books point us to the person of Jesus, the word made flesh, your chosen reigning king whose kingdom is here and is still coming. 
And so I pray, God, that you would give each of us a hunger for you, that you would cause us to come to creation, to come to scripture, to come to Christ, not because we're supposed to or because we don't want to feel guilty anymore, but because we truly want you. We truly need you. We truly want to feed off of you and fill ourselves with you. Only your spirit can do that in us. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, would you stir up in us a hunger for the best, for the deepest, for the good, for the life of God. Thank you that you have not just revealed yourself to us, but you have come to us and given yourself to us in Christ. And so we receive his life through this bread and through this cup with gratitude and joy. Make us an epiphany in the world. In Jesus' name.